Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Grant's Interest Rate Observer podcast. I am Jim Grant, and uh, joining me today, as always, is the great Evan Lorenz, the deputy editor of Grant, sitting directly across from me. And to my left, as you might imagine, is the man at the controls, Eric Whitehead. I don't know. Remember uh, Sesame Street used to be brought to you by a letter of the alphabet, like the letter A. And I'm thinking that one episode, perhaps this one of the Grant's Interest Rate Observer podcast, ought to be brought to you by with the word challenge, which word I cannot I cannot escape this word. Everywhere you look in the uh, financial and business literature, there's this nagging euphemism called challenge. How about just like uh, a big pile of trouble instead? Um, well, that's that's okay. That'll end that editorial. But the actual sponsor of today's podcast is Pitney Bowes, and you'll be hearing more about the excellent Pitney Bowes in a few minutes. But first, Evan, I would like to ask you about a new problem, a challenge that has surfaced thanks to one of our um, keen-eyed readers. Uh, This comes to us, uh, this news item comes to us from the Nikkei, uh, kind of the Dow Jones of Japan. And the news item concerns the exposure of the Japanese banks to dollar funding when they don't actually, you know, they don't naturally accumulate dollars through uh, deposits, and yet they have upwards of three trillion or more in dollar assets and um, how do you an- analyze the situation, Evan? Well, this is new for Japan. It's it's not new by history by any chance. If you look in the BIS's, the Bank of International Settlements, kind of the central banker's bank. Or the central banker's Swiss bank. The central banker's Swiss bank. In their annual report, they talk about how European banks found themselves in kind of a similar situation in kind of the mid-aughts. They ended up kind of binging on U.S. assets, especially U.S. structured credit, and they funded themselves in kind of the wholesale funding, funding market. So basically funding long-term assets with, um, with short-term funding. And come the financial crisis, it turned out not, not necessarily to be the best thing. European banks, according to the BIS, at least have learned their lesson, have kind of pared back from this. Uh, Japanese banks who were unburnt in the, the Great Recession, at least from this part of the financial market, seem to have um, found a lot more to love in American uh, fixed income markets than at home. And it's, it's not hard to see why when the Japanese 10-year bond yields nothing and the U.S. 10-year yields 2% plus. But um, they've built up quite a, a big exposure in the last 10 years. Well, what's, what's the problem? Uh, the exposure is, is large, but then again, so is the capacity of, uh, of a good, solvent, profit-making bank to fund itself, um, right? Yeah, except, except banks aren't that great at kind of generating outsized profits uh, since, since the financial crisis. Um, but there's a couple problems. One, if Japan runs into any domestic problems, and this this has been kind of an issue with Japan for a long time, they have a very large international net investment position. When they run into a, a crisis at home that forces them to liquidate their international position to repatriate assets back at home, that drives up the yen and makes uh, Japanese manufacturing less competitive. The other big issue is when you have this very large foreign currency asset sitting on the balance sheet of banks that's funded with shorter term financing, when they have to liquidate all at once, that they can end up liquidating at losses. So you have something that puts the financial system at risk and also puts um, Japanese manufacturing kind of not in the best place in the world. Well, the, um, uh, the five biggest Japanese banks, I th- think you have just calculated, Evan, have uh, show um, uh, dollar equivalent assets in the order of $8.6 trillion, uh, which to borrow from the middleweight champion, Jake LaMotta, is a lot of money even when you say it fast. So these assets are, are they're kind of suspended, right? They're suspended on the availability of dollar funding to, to hold them. 
And uh, come the day when the dollar funding is unavailable or is unavailable at a, at a reasonable cost, these assets might come on the market suddenly. And uh, I guess the technical term is shake things up. Indeed. Um, they'll have to pay whatever they can pay for their to fund these assets, which are often funded in markets like repo or um, euro dollars or w whatever offshore dollar funding they can get. And um, their assets will uh, fall in price that they all have to liquidate at the same time. A word now from uh, Pitney Bowes, our, our sponsor of this uh, Grant's podcast episode. It is brought to you specifically by SendPro. Did you know that uh, compared to stamps.com, SendPro has three times the features at one third the price? True. Now you can print stamps at your computer and call it the internet of stamps. Or you could, if, if you are, were of a mind, uh, continue to wait in line at the post office. Now, Pitney Bowes has no corporate stance on that question, but I suspect uh, you do, and you probably wouldn't rather do that. As for the SendPro, there's no special equipment required. You can print uh, paid shipping labels for U.S. Postal Service, UPS, and more. You can track your shipments from the same easy-to-use interface. You can save money, too. Pitney Bowes has negotiated special rates for SendPro users with savings starting at uh, $0.03 cents a stamp. I want to learn more, as I suspect you do, visit uh, pb.com slash grantspod to find out about an introductory offer that features 90 free days of SendPro, along with what the Pitney Bowes people call uh, a free 10-pound scale, by which I think they actually mean uh, a free scale that registers weights up to 10 pounds. Don't you think, Evan? Yeah, I don't think scale weighs 10 pounds. So let me know um, when you receive your scale. And uh, thank you, Pitney Bowes. You know, Evan, I was, I was riding the subway downtown uh, today. The Grant's offices, by the way, um, we should place ourselves in space, are situated at 2 Wall Street, 2 Wall Street in lower Manhattan, which is a, a long subway ride, even in the days when the subways worked. It is an especially long subway ride these days. And I was slipping through my emails, as one does in the train. I came across a message from our friend uh, Bill Hobie, who was a uh, an observer of markets, a keen observer of markets out in the West Coast. And Bill called to my attention a new comment on the state of the world by uh, what comes out of the Trust Company of the West, in particular, uh, Tad Ravel, uh, Chief Investment Officer of Fixed Income, who uh, oversees more than $160 billion in U.S. bonds and like assets. Now, here is, here is Bill's uh, introduction to this quite arresting commentary by Tad. It says, says Bill, it is pretty amazing when one of the top officers at a huge institutional money manager like TCW comes out sounding more like David Stockman than David Stockman. And indeed, that, I'm, I'm, Tad does. That's the fact. Tad sounds a lot like uh, the biggest bear I know, David Stockman. And here is the conclusion that, uh, that Tad writes, uh, Quote, times were when central banking was an honest profession. Asset prices are not meant to be arbitrary quantities that are to be steered or targeted by central bankers. The signs of late cycle excess continue to spread, but faith abides in central banking stimulus. He uses those words in quotations. Quotation marks. We all do well to remember that when markets lose focus in the fundamentals, there is danger at the door. All right. That sounds like, uh, like our kind of guy, Evan, Tad Ravel. I dare say if we'd known Tad at Grant since he was kind of a, a newbie on a commercial paper trading desk years and years ago, but he has certainly come into his own at TCW. What do you think of that observation? 
I think he's probably going to rest easier after Janet Yellen said that we're probably not going to have another financial crisis <laughs> in our lifetime. So um, I, I guess that's just off the table. Yeah. Well, you know, the headline came the other day, Janet Yellen was reported, I think, by a very hasty Bloomberg reporter, had to be hasty, Bloomberg is of the minute, uh, saying Janet Yellen says no financial crisis in our lifetime. But, you know, she disappointingly, she did insert the word probably, which, uh, but I, I have a, a suspicion she really doesn't believe there's any chance of all uh, of that, uh, judging by the context of her remarks and her thought over the years. Uh, but it's really, it's really. Um, I think, I think that uh, uh, the Tad's uh, comment. I, I call him Tad, though I, I have not been invited to. But I think that Mr. Ravel's comment, which is headlined "The Fed's Quixotic Journey," uh, bears reading. Perhaps the TCW people will make this available to anyone who asks. I dare say they should. Um, what else? One thing that uh, Yellen's comment reminds me of is I remember in kind of the mid aughts, um, just as the financial crisis was heating up. Bernanke was at a um, dinner honoring uh, Milton Friedman and his co-author... Um, Anna Schwartz. Anna Schwartz. And he said, um, Schwartz and Friedman, you were right. The Fed screwed up. We're not going to do it again. And uh, the risk of the Great Depression is kind of off the table. Just at the time, uh, the, the pressures for the Great Recession were building. Yeah. Well, this to me uh, illustrates the, uh, the empty bag that is monetarism. Of the work that Ben S. Bernanke, then a governor of the Fed, I think not yet the chairman... The work that Governor Bernanke was celebrating was uh, this immense book called The Monetary History of the United States, Monetary History of the United States by Anna Friedman and Milton, um, Anna Schwartz and Milton Friedman, Milton Friedman being the senior author. And the book is, is invariably referred to as magisterial, or um, what, by which people mean it's really, really fat. This is one heck of a book to pick up. But the book begins, if memory serves, which it does sometimes, uh, the book the, uh, begins with an epigraph that I think goes something like this, uh, beware of the fallacy of after this, therefore because of this. I think that was rendered in Latin rather than the English, but that's, that's, that, was the, uh, that was the cautionary epigraph. But the book, in fact, I say, falls into this trap. It, it, uh, it attributes to the supply of money all manner financial events, which may or may not have had something to do with M this or M that. And uh, Mr. Bernanke, I think at the time, and perhaps uh, later, was of the same cast of mind as were Friedman and Schwartz. He was a rather me mechanistic fellow, in my opinion, is, is a former chairman. Bernanke inclined to ascribe things to models and the like, which... Um, as satisfactory as they might be to the eye of the mathematician, fail to describe human action and certainly fail to anticipate it. So um, the gist of Governor Bernanke's remarks way back when in the presence of Friedman and Schwartz, the gist of his remarks, was that, um, uh, that now that the Fed knows that it must ease aggressively in the face of financial difficulties or economic difficulties, the way forward is clear. Is that so? I mean, I, I think it speaks, among other things, to a certain deficit in the knowledge of financial history. There was an episode in 1920 and 21 about to which some of us at this table at Grant's Interest Rate Observer are rather preoccupied. In fact, I'll confess I wrote the book, or a book about it, called The Forgotten Depression. And in this particular cyclical drama, uh, the Fed not only didn't cut rates, not only didn't 
implement so-called stimulus, but actually raised its discount rate in the face of collapsing commodity prices and indeed of collapsing real activity. It did so uh, because it was uh, implementing the rules of the game of the gold standard. And that was uh, that depression was uh, brutal. It was it was sharp. It was costly in terms of uh, employment. It was costly in terms of of um, lives of corporate profits, uh, a distant third to jobs and lives, to be sure. But still, it was costly in that regard. Uh, but it was rather short. Uh, Eighteen months peaked a trough. It, had the earmarks of a depression as severe as that of 1929-33, but it ended. And um, something that doesn't seem to happen these days is, is think, Evan, things don't seem to end as they did. The, these crises drag on and on without resolution. I mean, Puerto, when is Puerto Rico going to get resolved? Uh, Illinois. Tw 20 or 30 years, Illinois, yeah. To a degree, I would say, the, um, the crisis of 19... I'm sorry, of 2007, 8, and into 2009 has not been totally resolved. Witness the conduct of the Japanese banks. Witness the diagnosis that um, the aforequoted Tad Ravel gives in his most provocative piece from the trust company. It used to be trust company, the West, now TCW. Well, this, uh, I must say, I didn't mean it this way, but the uh, this particular episode of Grant's uh, podcast has taken a, a slightly downcast turn. I, I personally am upbeat, haven't I? but I, I, I do observe, I, I can't help but notice that uh, we are coming across rather as Debbie Downers now. Is there nothing that is upbeat or at least nothing funny we can talk about, Evan, before we wind this up? There is something funny in Kraft Heinz. Uh, Kraft Heinz is the uh, consumer packaged goods um, roll-up that Grants has been following since March of 2016. Now, for those of you who don't read the newspaper and are aware, um, 3G, with the help of Buffett, bought Heinz in 2013. In 2015, uh, Heinz, with uh, 3G and Buffett, bought uh, Kraft Foods. 3G is considered the most uh, efficient uh, manager of businesses, the best cost cutter, just the best operators. Um, the, the street's projecting that this company can achieve higher EBITDA margins than any other consumer packaged good company in the history of the U.S., and they're ascribing a really lofty multiple on these projected savings. The only problem is the business is is in kind of a decline, and it's in decline for a couple of reasons. One, consumers are changing what they're buying in the grocery store. It used to be they were happy to go to the center aisles and buy you know canned goods and and the processed cheese, the the craft singles that Kraft Heinz makes its money on. Now they're they're shopping more on the periphery of the grocery store and buying organic, gluten free better for you. They're buying produce. They're buying the prepared foods that grocery stores make. And the other problem is um, in the last year or two, millennials became the biggest population cohort in the U.S. And this uh, this blasted generation just doesn't really care about brands very much. They're, they're willing to try out new things. And they're also willing to try pretty much anything that their parents didn't buy, which is a, a problem for Kraft Heinz. Yeah, I've noticed that. So uh, Kraft Heinz business is in decline. And, and it's not just us saying that. In the first uh, quarter, the year-over-year -year declines in organic sales in the U.S. and Canada were 3.5% and 14.9%. That was in Canada. The big one was in Canada. The big one is in Canada. It, it seems Canadians are no longer eating their craft dinners. So an analyst asked what I thought was a, a very reasonable question. I think the perception is the cost savings are close to fully identified and the revenues are declining and there's deleveraging. And it sort of underscores this notion that maybe the business, that the whole model is broken and not sustainable. So Bernardo, Bernardo's the CEO. Can you sort of talk to that? How do you respond to that sort of theory? And here's the CEO talking. Yes, look, I strongly disagree with that statement. 
and you can see it. Actually, our model's been working for many, 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 many years, decades and so. Well, they've only owned the business since 2013. It can't be working for decades. So they have to be invoking kind of the longer 3G history. And the um, that history is a little bit checkered. Um, they ran the most successful investment bank in, uh, in Brazil from 1991 through uh, 1997. And in 1997, uh, it blew up in pretty much the same way that uh, MF Global blew up in the U.S., uh, heavily involved in repo trades, had unwind them at a loss. And uh, the only issue is um, Corzine in the U.S. who ran MF Global has a horrible reputation, and 3G has probably the best reputation in the in the world. How is Kraft Heinz value these days? Uh, let's see. Um, as of um, a few days ago, it was trading at like 33 times um, gap PS, uh, PE, and like 27 times or so um, the adjusted kind. Hmm. Well, it seems to me that Mr. Market has uh, a little homework to do on that particular name. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Um, Evan, thank you for that. Uh, Eric, thanks for the, your competent work on the dials. And Pitney Bowes especially, thank you for bringing this episode uh, of Grant's Interest Rate Observers podcast to you. Uh, until the next time from Grant's.